Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. DTW, Revoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Hello, everybody. I hope that you're all doing well. This week, we have two stories that I think you will really enjoy. And I have some exciting news that I will be releasing within the coming weeks, so stay tuned. But for now, let's drift further into Mr. Creep's mind. I live in a small town in rural Ohio. There are rules that must be followed. Written by Doavar. I live in a small town, about 1,500 people in the embodiment of a central Ohio farm community. Downtown Donuts is a mom-and-pop treat. They make the best French crullers, even though they're Korean-American. Winderson's Feed and Seed is a hub of gossip and commerce, as Old Maid Winderson also owns the train station and definitely plays favorites. And the Buckeye Bar is the pillar of the community cleaner than any bar that I had been to when I got my ag degree at the University of Tennessee. Town Hall is the actual home of large town hall meetings where we discuss everything and anything that needs fixing. Potholes, Town Hall. Wild dogs hunting livestock, Town Hall. Hate the mayor's new buzz cut, Town Hall. This place is practically a stereotype and that doesn't seem to bother anybody who lives here except for a few edgy high schoolers. I've never loved this town, and if I'm honest, I hoped that I would be leaving it behind me with my bachelor's degree. But six years of tuition killed my bank account, and that meant moving back in with my step-parents. Yeah, I ought to have mentioned that. Lots of kids in my town have a step-parent, although only a few have two. My mom left the picture pretty soon after I was born, and my dad remarried. I only have one memory of my mom and it's pretty vague. She had an eye patch and she was adding a bunch of glitter and rhinestones to it. I don't know exactly how old I was but I remember wanting it so bad it hurt. That's all that I remember of her. But I know that she didn't stick around for long. I don't remember why my mother left. Maybe she was tired of this town. Living here kills the soul. She wasn't from here anyway. Nevia called her that city lady, and I always figured between the stress, having me, and the rules of the town, she just laughed. And the first time my dad broke one of the town rules, he vamoosed and left me with my stepmom, Nevia. That hurt more than mom leaving did, probably because I got to know him. He was a kind and loving father, my personal superhero for 11 years and 3 months. I didn't take second to anything on this earth in his eyes. Navia remarried a man named Duke and gave me a semi-functional family again. That happened a decade and a half ago. So Duke and Navia are the only parents I've known for the last 15 years. They're good people even if they are flawed. But everybody's flawed. Navia works too much, 
She's always down at the Buckeye bar, sprucing things up or crunching numbers, making sure that the place runs smoothly. Duke is a good man when he's present, mentally that is, but he spends a lot of time with his head just out in space. His eye patch is pretty cool, or it was until I got a culture shock at college. Now the Dixie flag eye patch is just cringeworthy. Ohio wasn't even a southern state, but still, he's not a bad person, just misguided. Uh, what was I on? Oh, Dad, he was another story. Just him leaving. I remember the last day you went to buy donuts. He was supposed to be gone and back, but it was 8 o'clock and he had been hungover. Let me clarify something here in a feeble defense of my father. He was not a drunk, nor was he prone to substance abuse. Quite to the contrary, he and Navia had been celebrating his promotion to shift manager at Winderson's Feed and Seed. I don't know about anybody who's not from the middle of a farm community, but the Feed and Seed is a big deal in town. It pays well enough, but managers get more, and there's a lot of prestige that comes from holding that position, and Old Maid Winderson has always made it known that she hires up from inside. Dad had a lot to celebrate, and he and Navia did with gusto. Dad rolled out of bed late that day, which didn't matter because it was a Saturday and he was off. He had a hankering for donuts, which he loudly announced several times with an earshot of Navia, who responded with a groaning. I smiled at Dad. I was 11, and he was my hero not just because he stuck around when Mom had bolted, but because he was a great dad. I knew a lot of stuff because of him. He leaned way down, wincing as he did. What do you think, boy? Do donuts sound good? I nodded, a big grin spreading across my face. Do you think Navia is going to get up and go get us any? I giggled and shook my head. Our conversation made all the more fun because he was whispering. What could we possibly do about that? He grinned from ear to ear even though I could see his eyes were still bloodshot from their celebrating. Maybe I could get the donuts, I whispered, putting my hand beside my mouth to hide my talking. You could give me 50 bucks and I'll bring back the whole stock. Dad rubbed his chin. That's a lot of donuts. Who would eat them all? I pointed at myself, suppressing a giggle. My dad's eyes went wide. They were the prettiest green. You? He whispered, shouted, That's a lot of donuts for a little kid. Nah, I countered with all my wit. Puffing on my belly and chest, I straightened to my full sitting height. I'm a big kid, I'm almost ready for sixth grade. Navia's groan echoed out of the bedroom again. She sounded like a zombie movie. Dad poked my belly with a finger, and my held air gushed out. Shh, you'll wake the dead. Looking back, I realized that Navia didn't drink much, but I didn't know that yet. You don't want her to come and get ya. He grabbed at my sides and tickled me until I squealed. Are you getting donuts or what? The kid has got to be hungry by now, Navia moaned, her feet shuffling onto the cheap carpet of our apartment. My squeal must have rattled through my dad's hangover because his eyes got pained and he winced. His oof was soft though and he still smiled at me his overbite noticeable at this angle. He pulled on his boots and seed and feed hat and shuffled out the door. 
That was the last time that I saw him act like dad. Mrs. Jong said he had showed up at 8.07 and been browsing the donuts when 8.10 hit. She and her husband heard a shout of surprise seconds after the 8.10 bell rang. They kept their eyes closed the whole time that he was screaming and crying and cursing, all the way until 8.25 had passed, and then they called the doc. Crap, I forgot to mention the doctor. He has a name, but we'll just call him the doc. The doc is a good man by every measure. He doesn't charge people who break the rules even though he could make a mint if he did. He takes everybody's insurance or whatever anybody could pay to get fixed up if they didn't. I have an ungood account that he accepted two eggs and a pretty flower for an eye surgery. I'm told he delivered me, which makes sense, because he's older than sin but sweeter than sugar. Anyway, Dad and his hungover stupor had broken the first rule. They're posted all over town as if we could forget. Close your eyes from 8.10 to 8.25, both in the a.m. and p.m. He had been too hungover to react to the 8.10 bells and it cost him his left eye. Mrs. Zhang had a cut-off cup bottom on hand, most of us do anymore, and had gauze and wrapped it over his left socket until the doc got there. The eye had been fully uncleated, severed clean out, optic nerve, artery, and every small muscle neatly severed. This wasn't that rare. It seems that every year one or two people break a rule either on accident or because they're unusually drunk or just because they're new or stupid. Or both. It was just one of those things you thought would never happen to you or somebody that you cared about. Like car crashes or STDs. The doc rewove the gauze and he and Mr. Zhang loaded Dad into the back of the doc's ambulance. The way that Miss Zhang told it, Dad was crying the whole way trying to say stuff that wasn't quite words except cold, which he would repeat at irregular intervals. Our hospital or what we call a hospital is two floors and a little bigger than a nice house. Most of it is original with four beds and some pretty average medical stuff. I quite frankly don't know much about. But our little one-room surgery ward is a top-notch for eye removal and replacement. The town had saved up on extra gas tax for three years to pay for it, and everybody was excited. As I recall, we bought it when I was about seven, and it was the talk of the town. Lots of people with one eye looked forward to well-installed prosthetics. After dad got better, which took two hours or so because the doc is just that good, he came home and we didn't talk for three days. On the first day, he didn't do anything at all, just sat on the couch staring through the wall all the way out to nothing. He didn't move even when I hugged him, even when I crawled in his lap. Not even when Navia brought him food and something to drink. Not even as I peeked out my cracked bedroom door when Navia put on some lace and wiggled in his lap. It was like the body was there, but the rest of him was just gone. I think at some point he fell asleep with his eyes open because the next morning he was still sitting there. The second day was better and worse. He acknowledged the world around him existed, he just didn't care. When I talked to him, he looked at me like a weird bug or maybe like a new toy that doesn't make sense. Navia would talk to him too, but he just stared through her and she stopped. He ate, which was a relief because it had been just over 24 hours, 
and drank a little water instead of his normal morning coffee. Three times he went to the bathroom for a few minutes and then came back out. He kept going back to the sofa and staring out at the nothing. I eventually started playing at his feet, rolling my tank over his boots he hadn't taken them off, like they were hills and hiding my army men behind the heel. At bedtime, for some reason I couldn't understand, I peeked through my door again tonight. Navia didn't try what she did last night. I remember a vague sense of disappointment. I still feel uncomfortable about that evening. The third day was the hardest, on me and everybody else. And Dad was up to talking, but this whole demeanor had changed. He wasn't kind or angry or sad, he just stopped having any emotions at all. I would tell him that I loved him and he would say it back, but there wasn't any spirit in it. Navia was getting stressed, her hair was badly unkempt and its unruly curls stuck out at random. She cooed and coddled him, always hugging. He would return the hugs, but with limp arms and no squeeze. I cried to Navia that night while Dad was out on the sofa staring into the distance. She held me and promised that it would get better, that this happened when people broke rules but Dad would recover. The day after he had started packing, he had regained his animation and spirit, but he was bitter and angry. God, my warning. He grumbled, pulling drawers out of their dresser and dumping clothes in. Not going down there, not me, not going down there at all. His movements were angry and violent. Everything had to be slammed, nothing could just be dropped or put down. F rules, he shouted occasionally. Navia tried again and again to reason with him, begging and pleading, but Dad wouldn't have it. He shouted back while still packing. I ran over, desperate to keep him, and I grabbed his free arm. Please, Dad, please stay. He threw me off in a way that he never had before. I stumbled over a dresser drawer and fell, a splinter digging into my inner elbow as I landed awkwardly. How, Dad? Dad whirled on me and Navia intercepted him. I'm not staying in this death trap any longer. Come on, boy, we're leaving. Navia interrupted my small voice. We can't go and you know it. We won't have any income and I can't leave my mother. Why are you acting like this? Dad ripped the eye patch off his head. An obvious glass eye loud. You know well why, Nev. We're all going to end up in the basement and you know it. Get your stuff in the car. His eyes ablazed with spite and hate and a hundred other evil emotions. I can't honestly believe even now that I've ever felt such a conflagration of ill will. I was scared of him. In that moment, all the kindness and fatherly love didn't mean boo. I couldn't go. He stared at me and I didn't move. I scooted slightly away from him and he took the hand. You better get the heck out of here before you lose it too, boy. You only get one warning. He jabbed a finger in the air, meaning it for me, I was sure. I didn't know this man. He couldn't be my father. He slammed the bag shut, marched out to the car, and drove out of my life. Navia and I watched the car go, thinking that he was going to turn around. In the first couple days that we were sure he'd be back soon after calming down. Losing your eyes, no walk in the park, and we knew that he must have taken it hard. We waited for weeks, but he never came. 
One day, three months later, Navia sat me down at dinner. Well, kid, we have a problem, she said earnestly, looking me in the eyes. What is it? I asked. I think I already had an inkling of its nature. Well, baby, you're not mine, not my blood, and I don't think you're... Her voice failed her then, but I knew what she was going to say. You don't think he's coming back, do you? Navia's eyes were watery. It hurt to say it out loud. No, baby, I don't think he is. She took a deep breath. And once people realize that somebody's going to have to take care of you, it's not like he's dead. She stopped herself. He's passed away. They need to find a place for you. But I have a place. Isn't this my place? I pointed at my room and all around in a big circle. This is my place. It's where my stuff is. Navia smiled sadly in that grown-up way that infuriates kids. Yes, baby, your stuff is here, but not your family. Someone is going to come and see where you want to be. You have a mother out there somewhere, and you've got me here, but I'm not your blood. I don't want my mom. She left. I want you, and I want my dad. I heard somebody crying and realized that it was me. I want everything to be normal. Navia shushed me gently. I want that too, baby, I do, but I think he's gone for good. Or, if he is coming back, it won't be any time soon. She put her hand on mine. But if you want to stay here with me, I would like that. I sniffled. I know that because I was embarrassed in my tears. I want to stay, I whispered. Maybe he'll come back anyway. Yeah, baby, maybe he'll come back. I knew she didn't believe it. Her voice was thick with something, guilt or maybe sorrow. At 11, I didn't bother thinking about how much my stepmom was hurt. I was the center of the world and the town rules had yanked out one of my axes. So that's when and why my dad left. Navia couldn't leave. Her mother was getting senile and she had to take care of her. And besides, she owned the profitable bar and losing that money scared her. The rules are pretty straightforward anyway, so if you just remember and don't get too drunk, you're pretty well safe. Most of the time. Based on my time here, lots of people think that they're mentally disciplined. But no one has anything on this town. Do you know how hard it is to close your eyes for 15 minutes and not fall asleep? To just sit there waiting to hear a bell for what seems like forever. It's torture, but failing is what broke my father. So I do it twice a day from 8.10 to 8.25, morning and evening. Because that's the first rule. Close your eyes from 8.10 to 8.25, a.m. and p.m. every day. The rules don't make a lot of sense if you're an outsider, but we don't get them a whole lot. We're not connected to a highway and none of the interstate roads pass through here. If you want to come to our town, you've got to do a lot of driving out of the way. I don't know because I never cared enough to ask, but I'm guessing that's on purpose. Our high school teacher, Miss Jaku, in our local history class mentioned that the rules used to end at the edge of town back in 1933. In 1961, Mayor Lincoln Haversham got the bright idea to move the whole town six miles east. It was only 300 or so people back then, she said, and the idea wasn't as impossible as it would be now. After two years and a few months of hard work, 
the whole town was now outside at the old city limits. As soon as the sign was planted, people awaited at 10 a.m. with their eyes wide open. Every single person with their eyes open suffered the same fate as my dad. Not that they all left, but they lost their eye, sliced clean out. Most of the people in town over 59 are missing one eye. Most of the people over 65 are just missing. The area where this town used to be is part of what we call the rural zone. Any new construction has to be in the original town area before it can expand elsewhere. To contain it, I guess. Now you might wonder about babies. I have. After all, they don't know how to do stuff, let alone follow rules. I asked my dad about it once, when our neighbor had a baby. He just grunted and shrugged. I guess babies don't count. We teach kids the rules early so no one knows exactly when the rules start to count. The rules get drilled into you before you learn to read and you're closing your eyes for the first rule before you're two. I suppose we could do an experiment, but nobody has the stomach for it. But I know for a fact they count by second grade. That was the day when Geneza Bartel and Freddie Zhang broke rule two. They were a part of my class in a rundown school. Town saved that money for the operating room and it meant other things didn't get paid for under the tutelage of Mr. Morales. This is one of those schools where each room is a whole grade and you've got between 10 and 30 kids in each grade. Technically, we have two schools, Winderson Elementary and Daycare, and then the normal one. Winderson's is a sort of office daycare disguised as a school for zoning and taxes. No one ever accused old maid Winderson of being dumb. Most of us go to the town school grades 1 to 12, though. I was surprised at college to find out that even most other small towns aren't like that. I always assumed it was just part of a small town life. Mine was a class of 12 kids, the smallest on record, I think so. I got to know each of them really well, and we all stayed in contact, for the most part. No one hears from Freddy Zhang or Little Nance, though. We have suspicions that Freddy broke the rules a second time because we knew that he had broke them the one time already. We were there. And frankly, I don't know about Nancy. Maybe she broke the rules, but I hadn't kept up with her. She got into meth pretty hard after graduation and may have just OD'd out in the fields. A town like this can drive you to anything to escape. And meth is a problem everywhere anyways. Freddy Zhang and Janesia Bartel had made a bet one day about breaking the second rule, or so I was told by Sam Upson a week later. The three of them had been tight though, so I don't see a reason to doubt it. It had been a series of escalating dares, the sort of dumb stuff that kids do before they're grown enough to want to touch each other under the clothes. Touch a slug, put a blueberry up your nose, fart in the middle of class, that type of stuff. Sam said that it had been going on for nearly a week when Janasia came up with the rule-breaking. From 12.30 to 1, a second sun appears in the sky of our town and makes everything colder. In winter, it goes from freeze your nuts off to freeze your piss while pissing in the summer, and it goes from hot to not so bad. Unlike the other things, the second sun is something the town is pretty proud of, and I think it's the reason that the whole place hasn't been abandoned. It makes plants grow something magnificent. 
Crabs grow a quarter inch every afternoon and flowers bloom even if they shouldn't. A lot of people think the price of not looking up while it's out is worth it. Well, probably not Freddy and Janasia though. They got it bad. Janasia called Freddy all kinds of chicken and declared that she had won and stuff like little kids. Because they were little kids and because they were little kids, it worked Freddy up into breaking rule number two with her. I don't remember the stuff leading up, but they weren't really my close friends. Their biggest problem was going to be Mr. Morales, they thought. At five foot eleven and 200 pounds of boxing muscle, he was a tough guy. Aside from the memory issues and neck pain. I'm probably in the prime of my life while he's about 56, and I still wouldn't dream of taking him on. He's really great with kids, though. So they made a plan and enlisted Sam to help. I think he feels guilty to this day. Sam was supposed to jump up and run to the back of class, shouting about ants in his pants. Because I kid you not, that's the best plan a trio of second graders could possibly come up with. Yeah, ants in their pants. And then when Mr. Morales was busy helping Sam with his ant problem, they assumed it would be easy to get to the window and look up. I hate to admit that it worked, but that was the same time in the 90s that fire ants were the next great threat to America. So 1240 rolled around and Sam jumps up screaming, Ants! Ants in my pants! And sprints to the back of the classroom. He had a flair for the dramatic, as I recall, shouting, um, Ants are biting my wee-wee! Still probably the funniest thing that I've heard in my life. Janasia and Freddy made it so that I don't laugh about it anymore, though. Mr. Morales fell for it hook, line, and sinker. Drop and roll, he shouted, sprinting to the back. Facing no one and scrambling to slap, Sam's legs hard enough to kill ants, but to not hurt the child entrusted to his care by the county. Everybody was dying, either laughing or screaming about the ants. Kids have impressionable minds. One person starts screaming about ants and half the class imagines hard enough that they feel them too. Those of us that were laughing stopped pretty quickly and joined the screamers. While Sam and the teacher were panicking, Janasia and Freddy sprinted to the window. It wasn't far. Freddy was right by the window and Janasia sat right behind him. They checked the clock, one of the old cheap plastic ones that was never on time. We ignored and used the 810 bells for the first rule. Sure enough, it said 1242. Both of them pushed their faces up against the glass eye, cast it upwards. And that's when the smell hit. That awful mix of a crit and meaty that has burnt human flesh and hair. It struck the whole class and dragged their attention away from Sam's antics to the window. Somehow, it filled the class before the screaming. Smoke wafted up from Janasia's face as she yelped and began to scream. Freddy, I think, went straight into shock and just kind of fell in on himself. He went face down on the floor and I'm glad for it. But Janasia Bartel didn't. She spun around and flailed wildly, looking for something, the teacher to fix it or the safe invulnerability of childhood. Crap, I mean, she probably wanted her mommy. Whichever it was, she didn't find it. I could see the bubbling, flashing, melting eyeball goop running down her left cheek. Blackened, brittle flesh cracked in hair-thin zigzags all through her socket. Cloudy fluid weeping from each crack. Small blisters formed around the edge of her socket and swelled. Her eyes locked on Sam. 
where Mr. Morales was staring with his jaw slack like a fish in shock. The word cold escaped her lips, which shook Mr. Morales from his stricken state into action. He wrestled her to the ground with more effort than he should have needed before shouting at us to get the doctor. One of us, I didn't look at who, went sprinting out of the room while the other kids took turns, dry heaving or crying or sometimes both. Once Janasia was subdued, he bound her eye in a roll of gauze that I got him, on command from the teacher's desk. Every couple of years, he shouted, some dumb kid. Janasia passed out shortly after and Mr. Morales attended to Freddy. It would be nice if it ended there, I mean it really would. But the second that Mr. Morales had touched Freddy, he jumped straight up and did a weirdest shiver, tremble, seizure thing. He touched the empty socket which, just like Janasia's, was blackened, burnt, and it started to crack. The flash came away completely, stuck to his fingertips, and it started oozing what looked like overbaked blood. He whispered something about ice and started grabbing at his other eye, trying to pry his little fingers behind it. Mr. Morales snatched the arm away and Freddy screamed, flinging the burnt flash goop everywhere. Mr. Morales, I'll give him credit, did not fall down or puke his guts out like I did. Some of it hit me in the cheek and it felt like a messed up, melted ice cream. Cold and sticky and it left my skin with a tightness that I hated. The feeling spread as it ran down my face, curving over the corner of my mouth which immediately made my lips tangle in an awful way. Freddy and Mr. Morales wrestled for way longer than a kid I should have been able to. But second grade Freddy kept howling in rage and switching between trying to rip out his other eye and fighting the old boxer. Out of nowhere, Mr. Morales clocked him in the jaw and we all heard the bone snap. Freddy fell back on his butt stunned. Through his broken jaw, he started talking in non-words. They all had the sound and rhythm of real words, but they weren't. Maybe it was his jaw, but I had talked to the other kids for the rest of the week about it because how could a bunch of six or seven or eight-year-olds not talk about it? And everybody said they felt nauseous when Freddy talked, like listening to a song played backwards and sped up. No one in class broke a rule for the rest of their time at school. Janasia works at a local ice cream shop and seems pretty out there. I see her from time to time and she has a tendency to space out. She must carry a bunch of guilt seeing how, and again this comes from Sam, that it was all her fault that they played that stupid dare. She never goes to downtown donuts. I don't know if she's banned or if she just doesn't have the nerve to face Mr. and Mrs. Zhang. I sure as heck wouldn't. Freddy hasn't been seen for years and we and everybody from that class think that he broke another rule. Whether it was on purpose or not, I don't know. He acted pretty normal when he came back to school a week later. Maybe it was just a shock that he suffered. Having his eye burnt out at such a young age, maybe it was something else. I think it was something else. I've never heard a person talk like that broken jaw or not. I still think of all the rules. Number two is the worst because it holds the town here. I think if it weren't for the other sun making plants grow so well, this place would be deserted and I would have been born somewhere normal. I haven't seen many people break the rules, but I've never seen somebody go wild like Freddy in Janasia. Most people just crumple up in pain or cry for help. 
The closest that I've seen anybody come to that level of mania was the eagle conversationist that came through here in the late 90s, but I think that's a story for later. Man, I feel nauseous right now with thinking about second grade. That's why I'll never break rule number two. Don't look at the second son. Between my dad and Freddie Zhang, I swore that I would never break a rule and it took. But that's not the only time I saw a rule breaker. Like I said, I hate this town, it kills the soul. I've gotten numb to the agonies visited on other people. Like the conservationists who rolled through town following a tagged group of bald eagles. I learned about the DDT poisoning of eggs in school. How the eggs broke when they sat on them. We warned them over and over every time they told us what they were doing. I got the distinct impression they thought that we were one of those towns where you hear banjos and run. Squeal like a piggy and all that. They humored us on all the other rules especially after the mayor threatened to run them out if they broke any. They must have really cared about those birds to put up with our dire warnings and strange looks. But they broke rule number three. I had been given $50 to keep an eye on them and be their town guide. I don't know why at 12 and a half, Nevia had decided it was a good job for me, but I think it had to do with the handsome IT guy. Most everybody in town knows where the bird nests are. We make little signs warning people about permanent nests. And besides, it's not like rule number three says, don't look at birds. It's don't stare at the birds. Technically, it's only raptors, starlings, and hummingbirds. But nobody wants to be the dope who misidentifies a bird and breaks the rule. As I've told you, the rules have consequences that I feel are pretty severe. There aren't any bird watchers in town for obvious reasons. Those folks that do break a rule, it's pretty rare for them to break it twice. The eagle's nests are very well known. They're in and on the old Winderson barn at the edge of town. A while back, like before I was born, the whole place suffered fire damage and old maid Winderson moved into town instead of restoring it. The frame was still strong and now it was the host of three bald eagle nests. Everybody knows about it, everybody avoids it for obvious reasons. Except these conservationists, of course. It's kind of a shame, really. Virtually everybody else in America would be really proud to have such a concentration of bald eagle nests. It really is a thing of wonder. Although in all honesty, if we could look at them for more than a brief glimpse, they probably wouldn't be settled here anyway. I had ridden with them out to the near barn, but they didn't want to startle the eagles with their engine noise, so we walked the last 50 feet or so. I thought that I caught a shadow of movement in the sky a couple times and swiftly looked down at my feet. They stared at their cell phones and tablets, constantly complaining about dropped signals and spotty cell coverage, but that's just how it is out in the country. They were lucky the town even had reliable internet. Nevertheless, handsome IT guy insisted the eagle that they had tagged was nesting nearby. I reminded them to not stare, and it elicited a subdued snickering and knowing glances between team members. I rolled my eyes. People are already dismissive enough of kids' warning, so they'd begun to rub me the wrong way. Not that I wished that they would break a rule. Even though that may have been purely out of self-interest, after Freddy and Janasia scarred my innocent youth. The walkout was over uneven pasture, we had gone over a cattle garden through an electrified wire fence, 
and now faced the vast country danger of cow patties and gopher holes. Cattle raising is not actually that common where we are, our town specifically. There is cattle all over Ohio. Because of these second sun we get sometimes in the way that it affects crops, people tend to farm instead. But the old maid Winderson would collect quite a sum for grazing rights because the grass grew tall and green too. I've talked a lot about old maid Winderson, but this is kind of all I know about her. She's a shrewd, a clever, and ruthless businesswoman who occasionally plays favorites. But I don't think she's bad though. Just really dedicated to business above all else. What wasn't useful, she abandoned, of course. With what I just said about her, it shouldn't come as a surprise she didn't let her old farm go without collecting income. I just didn't know it at twelve and a half what was going on, you see. Never would I have taken those conservationists out to the old barn if I had. As we walked, the IT guy kept checking his metal boxy thing with. He said he had a piece of software that mixed satellite data with the pings coming off the tag. Sounded like magic to me. If I'm honest, it still kind of does. We kept following his pinging gizmo even though I told them how to get to the NAS. Don't look at the birds when we get there, okay? It really doesn't end well. The leader, a small woman who I now recognize, was a grad student, smiled patronizingly. Hey kiddo, I know the town's rules are really important to y'all, but they're really going to get in the way of our research. We can't say it's here if we don't see it, now can we? The IT guy piped up in a sarcastic voice. Well, technically, using my tag tracker we can. The woman cut him off. You know what I mean, Fabio. We could have taken the readings on the tag tracker back to the hotel. But if we don't visually confirm that it didn't just fall off here, it doesn't count. She smiled at me knowingly. I don't want to get kicked out of town, but I just can't not look at the eagle. How about I buy you a toy? Uh, what kind of toys do you like? Ren and Stimpy, I answered automatically. G.I. Joe and Batman, the animated series. I used the whole name to make clear which toys. But my enthusiasm fell. You won't do it though, not if you break a rule. Of course I will. Her voice was pseudo-parental. The kind people who don't see kids much use. I wouldn't break that promise, you just can't tell. This stuff is important, you know. Yeah, chimed in another girl, probably a second year if I were to guess now. These are bald eagles, the symbol of America, and they're dying. She put on a really silly voice, like some kind of 50s gangster. What are you, some commie? The cute IT guy socked her in the shoulder. Don't be lame. A society where we work for the benefit of each other rather than landlords and owners is. He began, but she cut him off. Now oh, shut up, Remus. You take too many philosophy classes. She sneered back. They began to bicker, fading into the background of my periphery. Breaking rules isn't a joke. Bad things happen to people when they break the rules here. Not the laws, the rules. It can be really awful and there's nothing you can do once you've broken it. I stared at my walking feet, the cool plastic toy slipping further from my future. The grad student stopped and kneeled down. Kid, she said quietly like a spy, do they hurt you if you break a rule, I mean? The look in her eyes was so sincere that I stopped disliking her. Memories of dad in second grade had tugged at my heart. 
It just sucks here. I held back tears to try and be big. The rules always hurt people and take away people like my dad. The grad student, Mariana, I think, cocked her head and brushed my hair back soothingly. And now I don't have a mom or dad, just Navia, and I want everything just to be normal again. A bubble of snot may or may not have formed under my nostril. Alright, sweetheart, alright. All patronization faded away into sincerity and concern. After we handle these birds, you can come back to our motel room and we'll figure out what to do, okay? And we'll definitely find you a G.I. Joe. What do you think of Scarlet? I liked Scarlet and her cool crossbow, so I smiled and nodded. Just don't break the rule, okay? I don't want you to get hurt. You're nice. She smiled and patted my head without answering. She and one of the other students, Remus or maybe the other college guy, shared a meaningful look. He tousled my hair and offered me one of his energy bars. I felt safer, but I could not stop feeling that they were going to break the rule and leave. The peanut saltiness and chocolatey sweetness calmed me down somewhat. It was a lot of walking for a 12 and a half year old. 15 minutes after a heart to heart, the handsome IT guy got excited. The little blip on his gizmo was pinging its way towards us. I immediately scanned the sky for the shape of the bird, not so that I could stare obviously, but so that I could know where to avoid. I saw the dark winged flapping while it was still tiny and immediately turned to face the conservationist. I reminded them of the rule again but nobody was listening, their concern over my plight temporarily forgotten. They were all staring at the approaching bird, congratulating each other and quietly whooping for joy. Looking back, I wish that I had timed it. Everybody would have appreciated knowing exactly how long you had to look to break the rule. I didn't know, so I didn't know how long except maybe 20 seconds. One by one, the conservationists were knocked down as something struck their chest. I couldn't see anything, but I knew that it had to be there. Small rips on their shirts implied talons, their frantic head jerking and hands swatting at nothing. Small gouges appeared on their hands and forearms. Blood was flowing freely from their wounds and dyeing their shirts in the grass below. I started crying and knowing better than to look around. I kept my eyes focused on the team. The handsome IT guy was the first to shout in surprise, their reasoning briefly paralyzed by the suddenness of the attack. His left eye was crushed and yanked out by the same invisible force. Optic nerve and artery pulled to the breaking point. The snap was wet and heralded a chain reaction of others losing the fight. One by one through all six people, the eyes were yanked out. Nerves and arteries snapped and disappeared. Once the last one was lost, I went about bandaging their heads with the gauze that I had brought, on the suspicion that they wouldn't listen. A twelve and a half year old shouldn't be comfortable providing first aid for a lost eye. I found that out in college. Not everybody has detailed first and second aid skills directly related to eye damage and loss. Everybody was shocked when my girlfriend at the time fell while buzzed and smashed her eye on a rock. Then came the questions. Why do you carry gauze? Well, paranoia. Where did you learn to do that? Uh, first grade through twelfth. Did you know she was going to get hurt? I always think somebody could. Were you a boy scout? Nope. Are you sure that it will help? Absolutely. She'll see again just fine. What kind of school teaches that? 
Don't they all, and why do you need to know that? Why wouldn't I? Even after their eyes were gone, they just writhed there, whimpering and crying about how cold they were. Everyone except Mariana. She was laying stock still while I bandaged her eye. The right eye boring a hole through my soul. It's so cold. Should it be cold? I looked back into the bloody but undamaged eye. I don't know, maybe. It was cold when my dad broke a rule. Freddie and Janasia complained about the cold. She never moved her eye from mine. I don't break the rules. I told you not to. I told you that bad things would happen. Utterly calm, she answered. What about the eyes? Should they be there? I feel them licking at me, looking all over, taking me in. Dark pupils dancing over meat. Hungry eyes, jealous eyes, desperate eyes. Spiteful, spiteful eyes. Why are there eyes? She snatched the collar of my new denim jacket, getting stained the faded blue-brown with her blood. I looked back in shock. No one had been coherent after breaking a rule that I know of, ever. I... I don't know. You're scaring me. I pulled back, but even the strongest twelve-and-a-half-year-old couldn't break the grip of a grown woman. Rugged and strong from deep woods backpacking in the name of conservation. You're scaring me. Shut up, shut up, shut up. I couldn't help it. I grabbed a fist-sized rock, digging into my knee and smashing her in the head. Her eyes rolled up in the back of her head and her jaw went slack. I pried the fingers off my jacket one by one. It wasn't easy, they were latched on like steel bands and I'm sure that I heard one crack. I moved on to gently tend to the last two. Once they were all expertly wrapped in gauze, I ran all the way back to town. It was getting to evening when I finally got to the house. I was listening for the bells the whole time, not having a wristwatch of my own. I had tried to take it apart and Navia wouldn't buy me another one until Wednesday. They tolled at 8.07 like always and I shut my eyes and dropped to my knees. The 8.26 bells tolled and I finally reached a house. There they called the dock and he arrived in his beat up station wagon, ambulance, 25 minutes later. We got back to them just after dark. I held his flashlight, one of those big, six-fold lantern types, and it still felt too dim. As I let him out to the field, I could hear even more crying. We ran stumbling over divots and stones until they came into view. One of them, the handsome IT guy Remus, was dead. The eagles were sitting on his corpse, pulling at the soft meat on his face. The other five were huddled together, weak and scared. The doc reached them first despite his aged legs. I held the light on as he tended to them, congratulating me on my wrapping. We just ignored the eagles. They're endangered still after all and Remus was already dead. That seems cold. I told you this place kills the soul. The rest of the night was uneventful by comparison. Mariana and two of the others helped everybody to the station wagon ambulance while the doc and I helped drag Remus on a stretcher. The eagles left right when I put the light in them. They looked really mad though I didn't really care if he got ate, but the doc said it wasn't right. They made a few dive bomb passes at us and that is a heck of a feeling. After two or three goes at it they soared back to their nests. Neither the doc nor I looked at the birds for longer than necessary to keep safe. I'll never forget the way the conservationist looked at me on the ride back. A mix of revulsion and horror like I was the cause of their suffering because I had warned them. 
I had borne the bad news and they saw me as thoroughly cursed. Mariana specifically kept boring into me with that eye. I think that hurt the most. She had been kind to me. She had understood where I was growing up wasn't right and I deserved to be treated better. She probably thought that I was being beaten or maybe the town was some big conspiracy or something. But she knew a child was living in unfit conditions and wanted to help me. But now she glared as though I had tempted her into danger, tricking her into breaking the third rule. Well, that's the reason I never break rule number three. Don't stare at the birds. By now, I bet a lot of you are trying to figure out what's going on. With each advancement in technology we've tried, VHS camcorders, digital cameras, video recording, cell phone cameras, recording on every street corner, infrared recording. We've also tried a lot of thought experiments. Seal somebody in a box, seal somebody in a box with an air tank, wearing a welding mask, sealing somebody in a diving suit, standing just outside the rule zone, watching somebody inside the rule zone, getting buried and unburied, and so on and so on. I don't know the outcome of every experiment, but I know they generally ended in favor of people getting hurt. One time, and they showed this video to every incoming and outgoing high school class, somebody taped themselves using an atmosphere diving suit. It's an old VHS. He smiled so confidently going in, ready to beat the world. I don't know if living in a diving suit would really be worth it. I mean the big ones with the old bronze sphere for a head. No way anything was getting in that self-contained monstrosity. He had air tanks and everything. At 8.11, the video shows a spurt of red blood hitting the inside of the glass porthole thingy. I'm sure that it's not the name, but I live in the middle of Ohio farm country, sue me. At 8.26, people rush over to help him and bloody drops fall out of the open diving mask like a tipped bucket. Not a lot of us get college degrees and even fewer come back here when they do. You can't bring friends that are significant others home. If anything, you try to visit them and their family. Another spring break of not having to close your eyes. At the drop of a hat is reason enough to stick with a dead end date. Writing that down feels a little shameful, but I don't care. I've done it and I would have done it again if I hadn't graduated single. I would have moved in with somebody if it meant not coming back here. In fact, I seriously considered going homeless in Tennessee instead of coming home. Knoxville has a lot of different charities set up to care for the homeless and life could be much worse than sleeping in homeless shelters and begging for a few bucks. It hurt my pride too much in the end to take up the same space as people who actually had no other choice when my life at home was just difficult. I did bring home a significant other once. She was a year younger than me but at the same point in her degree. She was smart as a whip and genuinely believed in the supernatural. I opened up to her at one point about our town's rules. I had received a call from Navia and Duke at 7.45 and it had gone long. Navia slammed the receiver down at 8.09. We had been on speakerphone. Zainab being absolutely adored by Navia, but it startled Zainab. I had been living on campus for two years, staying over the summer by working at the ag department as a gardener to keep my campus housing. Zainab stayed with me even though she wasn't technically allowed to, but our RA was her cousin and would turn a blind eye. I didn't mean that to be a pun. 
It had been long enough that I didn't reflexively think of 810 as a rule. I hadn't forgotten, it just wasn't automatic. After thinking a minute, I smacked my forehead and exclaimed, Oh, rule number one, right. That was the beginning of an uncomfortable conversation. Zainab was intrigued. What's rule number one? She asked, genuine curiosity in her voice. My guard went up instantly. Uh, oh, just some silly hometown thing. It's a superstition, I lied. Maybe I'm a bad liar or maybe Zainab is just as smart as I said. Your stepmom isn't superstitious, she said. What? You're crazy. How do you know that? I was already on the back foot after two exchanges and already knew where this was going. We talk when you're at class or work. She calls to talk to me. She waggled her eyebrows. She said that she likes me better than you. I gawped at her and she shrugged. I mean, I'm not surprised. You do snore. Sensing a chance to completely change the topic, I grabbed at it with all that I had. What do you mean she calls you when I'm not here? On purpose? Zainab grinned, and I love that grin. Yeah, she does. I talk to her about my father who's extremely superstitious. I hear him whispering that I would get accepted to an American college 40 times the night that I sent my applications out. He always carries a black cloth because of the black cat that lives nearby, and he has never in his entire life entered a house with his left foot. And that necklace you love when I wear it naked. She raised her dark eyebrows. It's supposed to protect against the evil eye. She staggered forward, arms out, her voice warbling with mock horror. Her moaning ended in giggles. Why didn't she tell me? I stammered. Why didn't you tell me that you had been talking to Navia? Zainab smiled and shrugged in that arrogant way that she did. Why are you trying not to tell me about your town's rules? My breath whooshed out. I don't really want to talk about it, babe. I said, shyly looking away. It's uncomfortable. She put a hand on my chest and said my name in a tone that rattled down my spine. You have nothing to fear from me, Gazlerem. I sank onto my bunk and Zainab descended beside me. You're going to think I'm crazy, I said, deflating. Maybe, she said, but then I will love a crazy man. With a deep break, I recounted to her the rules of my town and the different things I knew happened to people who break them. I started slow and spared her the details that I hadn't spared here. The dark ones or the sickliness that I felt witnessing them. That's not to say that I spared her the full danger of breaking them, I just didn't make it sound gross. When I stopped talking and rambling like I do here sometimes, she stared at me in silence for a long time, and then she put her arms around me and hugged me. Not the sensual hug that she used when she was aroused or the sad hug she would give me when Duke called to tell me that they had put down my old dog. Just a solid hug, one that implied a lending of stability and strength. I cried, I think, although I don't remember crying, just tears running down my cheeks as I was able to stop holding in my hometown's weighty problems. I will visit your hometown together next summer, she said. I tried to jerk out of her hug, but she held me tight. She was an accomplished softballer and enjoyed boxing. Yeah, I hit my girlfriend, but it was okay because she dropped her guard. 
No, no, she said as I began to protest. I will go with you and we will follow the rules. I will follow the rules. Her eyes locked on mine. Beautiful eyes of rich brown flecked with golden hues. I don't want you to. You'll get hurt. That town kills the soul. Navia and Duke have missed you so much. She can't leave the bar unmanaged in Duke. She says that Duke can't be trusted to drive long distances without spacing out. Family is important and we're going to visit yours. Her voice was strung like a steel cable flexing without giving an inch. And next year, you can visit my family. We have all sorts of rules and one of them is very definitely, don't marry a white American boy. It'll be fun. I laughed, cried for a while, and Zainab just held me until I relented. I kept hoping that she might forget by next summer, or maybe we would be broken up by then, or maybe she would just find the idea of rural nowhere Ohio uninteresting. Unfortunately for her, she didn't forget. Her conversations with Navia became more common happening once a week. Navia had been extremely gun-shy about the idea at first, until Zainab admitted that I had talked about the rules. She then comforted my stepmother with the knowledge that she was a firm believer in the supernatural, discussing when she fought off a carabasti that had been torturing her sister with wicked dreams and crushing the life from her as she slept, or when she had learned to guard her village's historic 13th century Ottoman well-frequented by visitors. Within was a chesma yasi that tempted children into climbing in and drowning, she ignored the creature's soothing calls while catching little tourist kids who tried to climb up it. In time, Navia, Duke, and Zainab were all on board with the visit, leaving me the odd man out. And by the end of the semester, my grades were suffering as I tried to cope with the stress of taking her to that town, this town. I finished with my lowest grades yet and forcing that fifth bank draining semester. However, Zainab was thrilled. You remember the bells for Rule 1, yes? I asked nervously in my 1990 GMC Sierra, rolling down a state route towards town. Closed at 8.09 and opened at 8.26. Check, was all she said, a look of calm and ease about her. Don't even look up from noon to 1.30, okay? I know you have to look at the second sun, but if you look up, your eye will probably be drawn to it. Check, again. Birds, don't even look at birds. Close your eyes if you have to. I thought for a second. It's polite to call out a bird if one flies into your view. Just turn around and call out the bird. Everybody will appreciate that. Check. And remember the... I remember, Gazlerum. I remember. I promise that I won't break a rule. God, I know, I know. I just worry about you. Besides, you're already going to stick out like a sore thumb. Our town is probably better than most about foreigners, but there's always a few pricks. I glanced at her in the passenger seat window down, and palm flat outside, gliding up and down with the air current. Then watch out for Jed Kirklich. He hates anyone who looks Middle Eastern. I'll probably start shouting Al-Qaeda at you. She was so beautiful in that moment, I wish that I had taken a picture. Cell phone cameras were sort of new and I hadn't bought one. No cell reception in the country wouldn't have been worth it. Sun gleaming off her dark hair and relaxed smile. I stopped well outside the rule zone at 7.45. We don't have to go, you know. Navia will understand. And Duke will probably forget you were coming at all in a week. We could turn around and get a hotel in Cincinnati. 
It'd be cheaper in Dayton, but you're worth the best that I could buy. That wasn't a whole lot, but I didn't say it. We wouldn't have to get dressed all summer, you and me. Hey, I know you're scared. She put her hand on my arm, but I promise that I'll follow the rules. She leaned awkwardly across the center console and kissed me lightly. Look, I even set an alarm on my phone. I glanced at the screen, confirming her statement as fact. I relented and took her into town. The phone started beeping at 8.05 and the 8.10 bell rang at 8.08. I stopped the truck, held her hand and closed my eyes. We talked, but I spent most of my time warning her to keep her eyes closed. It felt like forever, but she did it. At 8.26, the bell rang and I opened my eyes, tracking over her face to be sure that it was true. Both eyes were there and she smiled at me. And dinner with Navia and Duke went well. To this day, Navia laughs and says she would trade me for Zainab any day. Duke was in rare form, even got out his guitar and sang some western songs and even a jazz number that he had learned. I was incredibly hopeful. I'd be lying if I said that I didn't see a long-term future with her and the children and a house far away from this place. I was setting her up in the bathroom with her toothpaste and hair care accessories and whatnot, giving her little kisses. I held her hand as the 808 bell rang and we closed her eyes. I didn't feel the awful suffocating fear that I did in the truck. The 826 bell rang and I looked at her in the mirror. She smiled back and winked, making a deeply sensual face. I turned to her, eager to make my advance, when I saw that her face was not sensual but shocked. Mouth agape at her sultry reflection. My mind raced to shout, but I could barely get it out. Break it! Rule four, break it! squeaked my voice. But it's your stepmoms, she cried plaintively. Break it! I screamed at her. She had frozen, staring at her increasingly inaccurate reflection. I snatched up a rock with the number four embossed on it and a glittery golden swung for the mirror, but it was too late. Mir Zainab whipped her forward in the reflection. Zainab turned and ran as the rock connected. As I turned, I saw her stumble and fall, spinning as she went down, her eyes straining against the connections of its arteries and nerves. And then as I saw in the glitter of Mir flying past, reflection Zainab clenched her hand into a brutal fist. Zainab's eye burst in a gooey crush, like a popped water balloon, and it vanished. I held Zainab still as Navia arrived to bandage her face. It took my full farm boy weight to prevent her from thrashing as Navia wrapped the cup bottom in gauze around her broken socket. Duke snapped out of his trance on the couch, looking oddly for a moment before springing for the phone. The dock was there in 35 minutes, lightning fast for our country town. I rode in the station wagon ambulance all the way to our ocular surgery ward, pain that I couldn't be in the back with her. As I sat in the waiting room while he and the nurse operated, I swore on everything in my life. I would never break that rule, not after Zainab. I would be the thing that drove her away, drove her out of my life. I hate rule number four, not in the clinical way that I hate rule two, but in a deeply personal, spiteful way. If your reflection looks off, break it. Zainab left as soon as she could. Her new glass eye lacked the warmth that she had carried the last two years of our relationship. I don't know how long my heart hurt after that. 
I know that I cried a lot in my room. Navia and Duke were very understanding. I left town a week later, hugging my step-parents tightly and promising to never come back. And they understood. Navia cried a little and Duke told me that he was proud and gave me his old eye patch with the way families pass down special heirlooms. I laughed and he looked at me oddly before zoning out again. As soon as the 826 bell rang, I was out on the road again. I tried to make contact with Zainep again, but she avoided me and I really couldn't blame her. I wound up next to her in class my senior year. The first senior year thanks to my stress from before she came home with me and she apologized for fleeing. She said that it was too frightening when the mirror ripped her eye out, and seeing me just reminded her of that moment. She loved me, but still couldn't bear to see me every day. She gave me a light kiss on the cheek and switched classes before the next session. I stopped trying to see her after that, as much as it hurt. I swore over and over again throughout my life that I would never break a rule. But I did. After a week of being home from graduation, I was faced with rule number five, which is probably the hardest to follow. Don't get me wrong, keeping your eyes closed for extended periods, not looking up or at birds, and breaking mirrors in a hunch is pretty frustrating. But they don't get as bad as rule five. Rule five hurts. I got up one morning in the middle of summer to head out to my shift at Winderson Seed and Feed. I had taken over my dad's first position from a long time ago managing deliveries. I pulled on my jeans and boots and a University of Tennessee t-shirt. The WSNF hat my dad had left behind years ago was still there, hanging up on my bedroom wall. I grabbed it, tired of letting it be the past, and I went into work. The feed store is just on the edge of town, but people congregate there, buying and selling so it's got a big parking lot to accommodate not just numbers but also tractors and 18-wheelers. I parked near the back and made my way in the employee door when Old Maid Winderson intercepted me. Hey kid, she snapped. I usually don't let people call me kid but she is Old Maid Winderson. Yes ma'am, I replied and not looking her in the eye. I need a delivery received at the old farm. I'll pay you time and a quarter to manage it. The old farm, ma'am, I don't really, I started. I'm not asking, kid. Don't let me down. Grab two of the dropouts and take them with you. You can take the rest of the day off when you're done. She smiled what I think she meant to be a generous one, but it didn't sit right on her. Okay, ma'am, is it alright if I take Jeb and Demarcus? I leave Jeb. His mom's coming by for feed this afternoon and she buys more when he's visible. Take the Donahue boy. Okay, ma'am. What time is the delivery? 8.26, sharp. Her impatience was beginning to show. 8.26, ma'am, but what about rule number one? You can leave out at 7.45 if you're worried, but you need to be ready by 8.26. Yes, ma'am. I think my voice broke a little bit and she gave me a stern look before heading off to find more work to do. I think as long as there is work to be done, Old Maid Winterson will be alive. I've never heard of her taking a day off or getting sick. She's always managing something or someone. I let Demarcus Smith and Lionel Donahue know what we were doing, 
Neither of them was enthusiastic. Neither of them were willing to confront Old Maid Winterson either though. So we resigned ourselves to fate. I finished receiving a couple bushels of hay around 7.30 and I went to find the boys. It turns out that Lionel had begged off home with a fever, which I figured was a load of crap. Pissed at him for abandoning us and there was not another dropout available. As Old Maid Winderson called them, I took Demarcus and resigned myself to some manual labor. We were cruising by 7.50 and breaking every speed limit that we passed. Neither of us wanted to do this and neither of us wanted to be at the old farm I shut for 15 minutes. Demarcus spent the ride asking me about college girls, what they were like, if they really were more easy than high school girls, I think. I was glad to reach the old farm and end the conversation as only the most salacious factoids would satisfy his curiosity. The old farm was just as run down as it had been when the conservationists had come out. The nests were still there and both Demarcus and I avoided looking at them religiously. Where's this delivery coming from? He asked me. And don't know honestly. Old Maid Winderson ever sent somebody out here to receive her before. Uh, not that I know of at least. I've only been working since the fall though. Does she ever do anything else weird? I glanced at his face and saw the discomfort. Nah, was his one syllable reply but it looked like a lie. Come on man, don't lie to me. We're alone at the old farm and both trying hard as heck to not break rule number three. I don't know, sometimes she has meetings with Mara Vickers. I think that's weird but it's not like it's illegal or anything. Well this isn't illegal either Demarcus. Yeah, he said and stopped talking. The 809 bells were loud and clear even out here. We sat down and we shut our eyes out of habit. Neither of us said a word. Talking can be a little dangerous for rule number one. If you say something surprising, the other person might look out of reflex, and you know what the cost is. In the silence, I felt the cool wind moving my shirt and pricking up the hairs on my arm and neck. I heard the eagle chicks squawking for food and the beat of great wings. There were grasshoppers chirping everywhere, which felt off for early morning for some reason that I wasn't sure about. Demarcus broke the silence and I clenched my eyes shut against the reflex to look at him. This isn't right. Something is very not right. Wait for the bell, Demarcus. No way, don't you feel it? It's gonna be bad. I know I feel it, but calm down and wait for the bell. No, no. My mom ignored that feeling and never came home. His voice raised in pitch, squeaking out of him. One minute it's, hold on baby, something feels off and then it's all screaming about the cold. I heard him stand, feet unsteady with eyes closed. I felt him feeling around with his hands until one brushed my shoulder. You've got to forgive me man, but I'm getting out of here. Wait for the bell, Demarcus. Wait for the bell and I'll give you a ride. But I already heard unsteady feet walking away. Tentative boots on grass and uneven steps. Demarcus, just wait, I shouted. You're going to fall and break rule number one. I wanted to open my eyes and I wanted to see where he was but I swore that I wouldn't. My father's empty eye socket glared at me through 13 years like he was right in front of me. I kept my eyes shut. 
Even when I heard the exclamation of surprise, even when I heard the impact of a body on wet grass and the grunt of lost breath, even when the shout of surprise and ensuing screaming jangled my nerves to jitters. The 826 bells couldn't be late, could they? They couldn't be damaged or off. Did I miss them with all of Demarcus's screaming and whimpering and complaints of the abject cold? The temptation to open my eyes had rarely been stronger. Zeynep's surprised cry echoed through my memory and I squeezed my eyes tighter. Demarcus was calling my name, screaming anew as I heard the flapping of great wings and raptor cries. Roll number three, I shouted, eyes still closed. I slowly pulled myself onto all fours, crawling in the direction of the screams. Demarcus became so all-encompassing that he seemed to come from everywhere. I had to be close. I could see the conservationist, the cute IT guy Remy or Ronald or something with an R, being casually taken away. Swinging my arm out back and forth, I felt for his body. He had stopped screaming some seconds ago and I couldn't finesse his location out. I was sure the 826 bell should have rung already, but I didn't dare open my eyes. Finally, I felt the dampness of wet cloth and the rise and fall of ragged breathing. Demarcus? I queried. No answer. Hey, snap out of it, I said, jostling him roughly. Why hadn't the bell rung? I heard the pained groan from a little to the right. I ran my hand lightly over the cloth until I found the scrubby growth of his soul patch. That annoying look that he was always trying to show off like a dozen scraggly chin hairs counted his facial hair. And Demarcus, come on. His head flopped away from my hand. And then the bells rang, 826. My eyes snapped open to see him there. I reached around his head and tilted it back towards me. Both of his sockets were bare. One was surgically executed, arteries and nerves neatly severed. The other ragged and torn as though pecked at for many minutes. The growl of a truck engine shocked me and I nearly fell. Stay here, Demarcus. We'll get the dock. He muttered something and I took it for acknowledgement. Racing back to the driveway, I saw a short tractor trailer with no logo. Hey, hey, call the dock. My boy just broke rules one and three. He needs the dock. Two men looked to me visibly confused. Here's the shipping list, one said, a rather thin trucker with tattoos on his face and a grisly mustache. I said get the dock, Demarcus is hurt. I shot it again only five long strides away. He said here's the shipping list. The other one said taller than the other with the same build. His face was free of tattoos but adorned with a nasty burn scar. I don't care about the list, get the dock. They looked at each other oddly like they just didn't understand the concept. The shipping list. The shorter one began again. The dock, I screamed. The dock, the doctor, get the doctor. Puzzled expressions and silence reigned. It was then that I could see their eyes were shiny, not wet like normal but shiny like glass. The sun reflected off of them too well and too solidly. I could make out its blazing star form and brilliance and reflection. Here's the shipping list, the other man said, staring straight ahead. What? Who are you guys? The shipping list is right here, said the shorter one again. I took the list out of their hands, half exasperated, half furious. 
There were no words on it, just unintelligible scratches of ink. DeMarcus forgotten, I went to the back of the trailer and jerked on the handle. A padlock rattled in response. You guys going to unlock it? I asked. They weren't out front of the truck anymore. I saw them in my peripheral. Oh, I didn't know you followed me. Say, do you have a phone? My hair was electric, standing on end. I need to call someone. They looked at each other again and nothing said. We can unload the truck. Phone, I grouched. I need a phone. You want us to unload, the other said in response. I felt sick. DeMarcus was dying and these weirdos with two fake eyes weren't right. Sure, let me check my car, I said, keeping my eyes on them as I backed up slowly. As if reflexive, one unlatched the trailer and the other slid the door up. Once I felt the truck's liftgate against my back, I moved my feet, sliding around without taking my eyes off the men. DeMarcus, I called. I haven't forgotten you, bud. I'll get you the dock. Reaching in, I got one hand on my cell phone and the other on my 12-gauge. Keeping the barrel down, I checked that it was loaded and called the dock. Astonished that, I was at the bar and he ordered me to stay. I could hear him running on his ancient legs as we talked. I hung up and slid the phone into my left pocket. The dock's on his way, DeMarcus. Just hold on, pal. I dropped a Ziploc of buckshot into my right pocket and slowly eased around the side of the truck again. Back in view of the trailer, I saw the cargo. People, blind in both eyes and some still seeping blood, were being gently helped out and directed towards the barn cellar. Transfixed, I watched as seven people in total were shepherded down the storm door stairs to below. I heard from down there a soft murmur. I poked my head in looking around and saw dozens upon dozens of people standing silently transfixed on nothing. Not an eye among them. I staggered and tripped on my way back out, scrambling on the grass until I had reached DeMarcus. We have got to go, I said approaching, but he wasn't there. I felt a hand on my shoulder and turned around. David, someone said. I turned around to answer my name in the glow of the late morning. I was stunned. DeMarcus? He stood behind me, staring straight through my soul. David, he said. David? I stared hard into his empty sockets and then I remembered rule number five. No, DeMarcus, I whimpered. No, no, no. His voice was the same, but his inflection, his tone, his impressions were alien to the boy that I knew. The tough high school dropout, tempted by the money at Winderson's. You're not him. He repeated my name again, agitated. I looked down at the shotgun and contemplated, blowing off his head. Putting another round in his knee, maybe, just to keep him from running me down. But I thought of every rule breaker that I had seen. Would it have saved them? I sighed and let the gun swing at my hip. Okay, DeMarcus, okay, rule five. I pressed my own fingers against the underside of my left eyelid, pushing past the unbearable agony I felt at this first insignificant step. I pressed and pressed until one slipped under the eyelid and behind my eye. I collapsed to my knees, crying great, heaving sobs of pain and bitterness. I pried then, pinky straining against the soft squish of my eyeball. I felt tension in places that I didn't know I could feel. 
nerves being first touched by the outside world shrieking in pain and fire. I thunked from my knees to my side as I pressed on, prying my living eyeball from its socket. Screaming too high and too frenzied for me to believe that I could make it echoed around the field. A second finger slid into the socket. Air rushed into the sealed space, bringing new pain and new agonies. You! I shrieked. Everything went black for a second and I woke up just a little while later, eyes still behind the socket. You son of a... I howled as the first minor nerve snapped. A domino effect, nerve after nerve, breaking free as I pulled. The eye was free of my socket now dangling in the fresh air. White-hot furious pain lodged itself in my skull, setting my head on fire. I hate you, I hate this town, I hate the rules. I hate, hate, hate. The eye came free, artery spraying blood on the grass, holding the precious orb forward. I offered it to DeMarcus. Here's your freaking eye. DeMarcus bent down and took it, his sockets unflinching to my plight. With a smooth motion, he popped it into his mouth and swallowed. He turned and walked into the barn cellar without another word. Slowly, I could feel the presence of eyes. I looked around frantically, but my vision was racked. Overlapping views vied for my brain's focus, creating a mad chaos. I closed my remaining eyes, staring out through God knows what. It was inky black, the kind of black that implied shadows which weren't there. All around, I saw what were, for lack of a better word, eyes. They fixated on me and I felt small and insignificant. They had no apparatus for expressing feeling, no eyebrow or face or eyelid to slant or tilt or close, and yet they expressed something all the same. Hunger. I could feel the word in my soul as sharply as it being announced over an intercom. Spite. The feeling reverberated in my bones, hunting down every nerve and setting it off wrong. Desperation. Nine at my gut and begging for release, I knew there was nothing the eyes were not capable of. I felt myself hoisted up into the air, a dozen hands holding me firmly. I opened the other eye again and disjointed images overlapped and churned. The eyeless were carrying me down. One hand still held, white-knuckled tight to the shotgun, the other grasping for a safe hold. I felt the eyes get closer, closing in around me. I closed my eye again and searched. There, there was my father's gentle green. Far away on the other side was Zainab's deep hazel. I was drawn to a set of six and I could see the piercing gaze of Mariana, the conservationist. Amongst the eyes were many. I assumed Freddy and Janasia's were there as well, though I didn't know them well enough to find them. There came a fourth a sensation, something that I hadn't felt from the eyes yet. Something that I had never heard anybody speak of. It was a feeling so utterly shocking that I nearly dropped the 12 gauge. Triumph. The eyes stared all around me in victory, in conquest, in mastery overall. I was a prize, a gift. They stared greedily at their trophy moving further into the cellar. I was being passed along like a demented crowd surfer towards some place. Some place that I did not wish to go. I locked stairs with my father's green comforting iris. 
Even the harshness of the eye's emotion did not dull the gentle feeling that I felt there. I turned to Zeynep's haze and counted the golden flecks within. The cruelty of this thing could not dull their beauty. There was an immense pressure like a sinus headache all throughout my soul. Something pushing, pulling, prying to get in, just as I had pried out my own blessed eye. A pinprick slipped into my mind and raced through me. I felt the eye's emotion so much more vividly, so much more clearly. I felt nuance that hadn't radiated. Gasping for air, I finally touched the stone of the cellar floor. I knew that something wanted in because it was already in, filling up the places that I filled, pushing me out of the places that belonged to me. I no longer remembered what, what did I not remember. There was a hole where my memory should be. I felt myself start to drift, cut loose inside myself. My hand raised the shotgun barrel to my chin. This was mine, this was me, this I controlled. I felt confusion scramble my thoughts. What was I holding? How did it work and what was it for? Freedom, I said out loud, it's for freedom. The space between me and myself shivered at the thought. It wanted more, it wanted freedom more than anything. Squeeze, I said aloud. Squeeze the first finger. A harsh glee thrummed through not me as it sought the satisfaction of freedom. My fingers squeezed and I was finally free of the rules. Because of rule five, I didn't have to worry about the rules anymore. Don't look into the eyes of the eyeless. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere. And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hello, it is Ryan. And I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me. And you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Torresny, New York was my hometown for 25 years. Yesterday, it went dark. Written by South Park is Cool. Torresny is a small suburban town in upstate New York. No more than around 500 people live there. I was born there in the late 90s and I've never lived anywhere else. I just never had the incentive to move. I can't recall the time when anything happened in that town. Not even a theft. It has to be the definition of a quiet, sleepy town in which nothing happens. I was out of town when it happened. On a casual trip to Manhattan for two days. I'm not exactly sure when it began. I was sitting in a hotel room waiting for responses from two of my friends to messages that I had sent them three hours earlier. My friends from out of town had responded to me within minutes. 
I had messaged all of these people at roughly around the same time, 7pm on Thursday. That wasn't the thing that felt weird, however. I didn't think much of it at first. I assumed they would respond at some point. Them taking a bit longer to respond than usual would have to mean that they're busy, but it was nothing to me. Then at around 10pm there was a knock at the door. I went to answer it. A police officer was standing in the hallway. Are you Jesse Colson? Yes, I said. There's a disturbance going on in Torsney, he said. We're going to make sure your friends and family are safe. Do not go into the town until we can be sure of your safety. All right, officer, I said. What's the disturbance, though? I don't have all the details, he said. When I get them, I might be able to tell you. He walked away and I shut the door. The idea shook my nerves, but of course, if they stayed safe, whatever was happening wouldn't get to them. But I didn't know what was happening. I couldn't assume anything. Was there a way the police had no details to give? Maybe a few officers didn't have any details, but the ones in the town had to have them. There's no way most officers were without details on what was happening if they were telling me to stay out of town until it's taken care of. I got back into bed and did a Google search for Torsney to get updates on the situation. When I looked under the news section, there was nothing, let alone anything about any situation going on in the town. But that's when I realized my friends and family from Torsney hadn't gotten back to me. I messaged them again all of them. I asked them what was happening and if they were safe. There was no immediate response. I assumed they were busy making sure they were safe and distracted myself to ease the anxiety. But I couldn't distract myself for long. The itch of worry became irresistible. I couldn't bear anything terrible happening to my friends, and not knowing what was happening was even worse. If the situation was dire enough to warrant not visiting the town, there would have to be something about the situation somewhere. I checked every social media app that I had, searching for any comments or videos about the situation in the town. There were no tweets about it from anybody who lived in the town, not even from the mayor, whose latest tweet was from earlier in the afternoon. There were no TikToks of the situation from anywhere within the town or in the surrounding area from any time in the past. There weren't any videos about the situation on the accounts of anybody who lived there. That, of course, includes the friends that I have who live there, all of whom have TikTok accounts. And then I checked YouTube. I did a search for tours near New York and sorted the results by the past 24 hours. There was a video with only two views. Amongst all the unrelated videos with around 100 views that popped up, it was titled, Upstate Drone Capture. In the thumbnail was an aerial shot of a wide area that included a town. I recognized the town along with the line of hills behind it. It was Torsney. I selected the video. The town looked normal from above and afar in the thumbnail. If the situation was as bad as I felt was implied, it would be visible in some way at some point in the video. According to the description, the video was taken that afternoon. I skipped through it until I found a part my town was visible in. I stared at the screen, waiting for something to happen. 
the drone never got close to Torsny. It just hovered around above the neighboring town. The only thing I can say happened was that at multiple points a flock of birds flew away from the town. That was it, it was nothing. Nothing visibly happened within the town at all. At least not at that hour. The hour that my friends would have responded to my messages in. Based on the usual amount of time it takes for them to respond. And the reason I'm explaining this is because I found the lack of information to be quite dreadful. I felt cold thinking about it. Nobody from the town was saying anything. Yeah, maybe they're busy trying to stay safe, but the town's government hadn't said anything. It was as if the town was dead. I didn't expect to be able to get to the town myself because of the police, so I was running out of options. Waiting wasn't one of them for me, though. I was getting colder by the hour. I messaged my friends again, Jack and Sam. I asked them both the same question. What's going on over there, guys? Are you guys safe? I'm worried about you. After that, I scanned the news again. Nothing. So, I decided to get some sleep. After all, I was pretty exhausted. There had to be something in the morning, right? The next morning, I woke up to the bright shine of sunlight. As I got up, I turned my phone on. Hopefully, I would at least have one message. A rush of emptiness filled me when I saw a screen with no notifications displayed on it. I checked all the same things frantically, and everything was the exact same as they were the previous night. After eating breakfast, there was a knock on my door. When I looked through the eye hole, I saw a man. At first, he looked normal. Long sleeved t-shirt, blue jeans, black hair. But then I caught his glare. It was foreboding, invasive. His eyes looked off in general, in fact. His pupils were an odd color that I can only describe a tiny bit for some reason. It was like a yellow with the energy of the darkness of blue. At the same time, it felt as if his eyes were dark abysses. Not never-ending, though. More like things wanted to jump out at me. His glare and everything about his eyes sent shivers down my spine. I phoned service and asked them if they sent somebody up. I told them about the man. They told me that they hadn't sent anybody up. I looked through the hole again and he was still there, with his glare almost frozen at the expression that it was at before. After about a minute, I heard footsteps coming towards the door. A woman spoke. Hey, the woman said in a stern tone. I watched as the man walked away. The lady walked by asking him to identify himself. With that, I shifted my focus back into Torsny. The police hadn't returned, but I assumed that if the situation wasn't big enough to make the news, then it was probably over. I checked my messages again. Still nothing. Now that's it, I said to myself. I walked out to my car. Maybe it was the coffee, but I didn't care much about what the police might do if they were guarding the town. Maybe they would just tell me to turn back. Maybe I wouldn't come face to face with the officer from before. Maybe the situation ended as recently as when I stepped into the parking lot. As I drove through the countryside, things were relatively calm. I wasn't expecting much. Halfway down a road in the middle of a forest, well, things got weird. 
A gas station came up ahead. It was to my right on my side of a four-way intersection. I knew the intersection as the last one to cross before reaching the town. On the opposite side of the intersection was a police blockade. Two cars, a van, and seven officers. I pulled up to the gas station to refuel my car. I was running out of gas anyway. After that quick business was done, I climbed back into my car and contemplated what I was going to do next. If the situation was bad enough for a blockade, then it was still in progress. If it wasn't on the news, then would it have to be bad enough that the press wouldn't know how to handle it? But I mean, how could anything get that bad? As I drove away from the gas station, the way my car was moving felt off. I parked in a nearby parking space and then stepped out of my car. Taking a look at the tires, I found a square hole that had been cut out of the back tire on the passenger side. The hole was a clean-cut square shape that gaped out towards the side of the tire. Who did this? The sensation of somebody staring at me hit the back of my head. I glanced to my right, towards the bushes and trees across the street. The man with bulging yellow-blue eyes was standing in front of one of the bushes. The chills returned. What did he want? Glancing around to check if anybody else could see him, I glanced at the convenience store. A woman with long black hair sprinted out of the front doors. A loud bang erupted from inside. The glass from the double door shattered into pieces and flew some distance away from the building. I glanced towards the blockade. The officers were looking in the direction of the store with hesitant looks on their faces, as if confused about what to do. None of them fished out their radios and none of them drew their guns. They didn't look ready one bit. I watched on, wondering where they were going to do something, anything. But then I heard a deep growl behind me. I glanced back, and I went cold at what I saw. The owner of the store stepped outside and fell to the ground. The right half of his head was a purple fleshy mush with two extra eyes. His hands were turning gray. He screamed and tried to pick himself up, but then he let himself lay on the ground. A few things crawled out from under his shirt and squirmed around on the pavement. I can't even begin to describe what they looked like without being choked with dread just thinking about them. What the heck? I glanced at the officers across the intersection. They had the same horrified expressions on each of their faces. The one on the far right took off the radio and spoke into it. The man with bulging eyes rushed over and jumped him. The other officers took a step back. Each of their eyes widened as they looked on. However, not one of them pulled out their guns. Was there some sort of deal between the officers and somebody else to not act at all? The officer's radio fell to the ground. The man let him go just to crush the radio to pieces. The officer picked himself back up and reached for his own gun. And then the man kicked him with what had to be the hardest kick that I had ever seen. He flew about 30 to 40 feet and rolled across the muddy and grassy ground. I never thought that a kick could be strong enough to push a human that far. The officer let out a painful grunt. The other officers quickly exchanged looks with each other as the inhuman man walked up to the hurt officer and grabbed him by the neck. The officer standing nearest pulled out his own gun. 
The man dragged the injured officer into the bushes while the officer standing by aimed his gun. He fired in the man's direction, but a hole was put through his own neck. He shrieked, fell to the ground, and struggled. A few more seconds passed before the kidnapped officer let out a chilling, animalistic scream from somewhere deep in the bushes. What was that thing? It didn't act in a way a human could possibly act. It seemed like an exaggeration of a human, at least in terms of strength. As I stared in horror, something caught my eye. On the road in between the forest and the gas station, there were huge swarms of tiny things, like groups of bugs were moving across the street, towards the gas station. It was like they were escaping something at jumping ship. The chills intensified. This isn't better than I thought it would be. I stood up. I had to get back in my car and drive wherever necessary, away from this mess, even with a flat tire. However, a woman was sprinting towards me. Her speed was inhuman and I barely turned my head before she made it to my car. Her eyes were bulging. They too included the mysterious yellow-blue color that I was sure didn't exist. She pulled out a device and placed it on the trunk. I wanted to ask her what was going on, but she sprinted back in the direction she came. The device in the car began to blink. Get away from the car, one of the blockade officers yelled out. I turned around and sprinted to the far side of the gas station lot. At that point, the store owner was frozen in one spot. His skin was now a deep gray color. His hands had melted into the pavement, appearing unrecognizable to what they once were. As I ran past him, a loud bang hit my eardrums. When I got to the other side of the lot, I stopped. I looked back and noticed that my car was flaming. Great. I'm typing this while keeping watch of my surroundings. A red minivan drove up the road and the police officers at the blockade signaled for them to turn around. They backed up and drove into the lot. They parked and then out came a man with dark hair and a well-groomed beard. He looked similar to my neighbor Frank. I read the license plate on the car. It was Frank. He had a look of surprise as he looked in my direction. Jesse? Frank, yeah, it's me. Are you trying to get into town too? I summarized the situation up until now and then I asked him if he knew why it was happening. No, I just wanted to get back home. It's like the town is missing. Nobody's picking up my calls. He wanted to explain a man with bulgy eyes was following him half of the way to town, and he could feel the man staring at him. The feeling disappeared whenever he entered a crowded place and then it would come back when he was alone again. Oh great, he was being stalked too. He asked about me and I explained my situation the best I could. Frank was pale by the time that I finished. Oh, what's going on, man? Frank took out his phone. I went back to typing this, and as I typed, Frank screamed. I glanced up. The stalker and the woman were dragging him by the head and throat. He was pulled across the street and into the trees. The pit of dread grew. What did they want? What should I do next? I could run the other way, but going by what Frank said along with the way police were acting, if I called the police on the stalker, they would report it in soon. They would just tell me not to go near it or something. 
The stalker would probably disappear before any officers who didn't know this was happening could find it. Me reporting while in close vicinity of a stalker could get me kidnapped by one or two based on what I saw, so I'm avoiding that. The fact that they want to be hidden so badly fills me with dread. Oh, and one extra thing I noticed was that the taller trees beyond the blockade stood still while the others swayed around whenever the wind picked up. I'm not sure what that's about. I need time to comprehend this whole thing. I wouldn't stay in a dangerous situation for long. No one would. They couldn't. I had to leave. I had to run away from the scene. I sped down the road away from the intersection, and that's when I felt that it was watching me. Somehow I knew that it was. I committed it to calling it a stalker at that point. It was as if it was telling me that it was watching me, but telepathically. It was one of those things where you only know it when you experience it. The sensation of the abyss of bulging eyes hit my neck and gave me the ultimate dread. When I got a good distance away, I phoned a taxi. I had to get back to the hotel and figure the whole thing out. Right after I got back to my room, I googled anything I could that had to do with the stuff that I saw at the gas station when I was attempting to get into town. Creepy people with bulging eyes. Creepy men with bluish-yellow eyes. And because I was so confused about the color itself, I searched for bluish-yellow. I finished it off by searching town-wide loss of communication for anything that could point to why Torisney went dark. All that came up was stuff about psychopaths. I mean, maybe. But if so, these psychopaths were different. I did look extra deep and found a couple of obscure recounts of similar things. Only one mentioned never seeing their family again all of a sudden. I reached out to them via DM explaining everything about my situation after asking if theirs was similar so-called forbidding colors. Although I took note of the fact that most people are unable to see the colors, that had to mean something, right? I could see the colors. I didn't have to stare at two white plus signs on images of the colors of blue and yellow and the communication between people, like just talking and stuff. And then I used quotation marks. Mysterious disappearances came up none of which involved towns going dark and becoming inaccessible. Four hours later, I got a reply from the person that I DM'd. This is what it said. It's kind of fuzzy now, but the guy looked normal aside from his eyes. And yeah, his eyes were a weird color too, but the color was magenta. I don't know much about the town my family lived in. My family was the only reason that I ever paid a visit. They just stopped answering me one day. When I eventually drove up to their house, I saw that their cars were parked in their driveway. I knocked on their door, but nobody answered. It didn't look like they were home at all going by the inside of their house. Nothing was on, and I didn't see anybody. And I knocked again and again, but still, nobody answered. Looking back, there was an odd quietness to the town that day. And the trees would barely move in the wind, which I found odd. Hey man, hopefully you find your friend soon and can get back to your home. Weird eyes. Trees that would barely move in the wind. Their situation had to be a similar one at best. Odd silence and nobody around. 
If that same thing was happening in Torisnia, it would explain nobody from the town answering anything after I messaged them. But if people did just disappear, where did they disappear to? How could they possibly disappear into thin air? The idea of people just not existing anymore didn't sit well with me. What would even make them vanish in the first place if that was the case? No matter what theory could be posed, their message was no confirmation. According to the original post, their town was a small town in Wyoming, and the last time they met with their family was back in 2017. The time they went to visit their family but the town was dead silent was six months after the last normal visit. That would still be about five years ago. I guess that means that if the two events are connected, whatever this thing is has been going on for some time now. After a while of messaging friends from outside of Tornsney, asking them if they knew anything and then responding with a no, there was a knock at the door. Assuming it was an employee rather than another weird man, I got up and answered it without hesitation. It was my friend Jack. He had multiple bruises and a thousand-yard stare that felt like it went far beyond me. Jesse, you, you're okay, he said. Yeah, are you? You went completely dark, I said. Yeah, sorry, I couldn't respond to anything. I need to get out of the view of the hallway, bro. He said with a panicked expression on his face. I knew him, he was in bad news, so I let him in. I peeked down both ends of the hallway, not noticing anybody standing out there. I peeked my head back in and I shut the door. Jack sat at the end of my bed, staring aimlessly at the wall in front of him. What happened to you? I asked, if you're comfortable telling me. Jack looked straight into my eyes and then he looked away. Torisney's far gone he said. What do you mean? I mean, you would have to be there to know. It's unfortunate, crazy, I can't describe it. Weird. Not, not ordinary. Why isn't anybody allowed to communicate? I asked. He grunted. He looked around until his face began to take on a reddish hue. Uh, it hurts to recall. It's like whatever is in the town doesn't want to be acknowledged. And before I could ask him anything else, there was a knock at the door. I walked up to the door and looked through the hole. It was the stalker. He stood there, giving his usual glare. I stepped back towards Jack. Is it? Jack began. A guy with weird bulging eyes, I said. Jack almost jumped out of his seat. He adopted a panicked look on his face and glanced around at multiple doors. No, there's nothing we can do, dude, Jack said. There's nowhere to go. He can't follow us everywhere, right? I asked. Uh, maybe. I don't see a point in running. We can't get away from him. For a second, I was thinking that we had a chance of finding a place to hide from the stalker. But then it sank in. The thing could follow us anywhere. He could trace any official means of travel. We didn't have many options. It was either we stay in the hotel room and wait for whatever had invaded our town to leave, or we find some other place to stay for the time being. Yes, staying in the hotel was the obvious choice, but there were two issues. I don't have a lot more money for it, and I don't know how long the town is going to be occupied for. The initial thing in the town was still unknown. Whatever it was, one could have to go into the town and experience it themselves, 
going by what Jack had told me, so I pressed him a bit more. The situation, what is it actually being caused by specifically? I asked. I don't know. It just happened and it's weird, Jack said. Jack's panicked and thousand-yard expressions gave me the creeps. Not to judge him for feeling whatever he was feeling. He had clearly been through something, something strange. Jack remained silent for the following hour. He alternated between covering his face with his hands and sighing all the while sitting in one spot. I paced around, confused as what to do or where to go next. I had no roads to go and my other friends didn't have enough room to let me stay going by the way that they lived. There was a knock at the door and I looked through the hole. The stalker was still standing there. The head of another stalker was partly visible as well. Ah great, there's one for Jack too. I began to wonder what would happen once Jack and I had to check out of the hotel. Would they eventually capture us? Why didn't it capture me when I reported it earlier? Was it because I was in a public space? I paced around pondering these questions. The weight of the situation was heavy. At one point, my phone vibrated. I checked and saw that I had an email notification. I opened it. The email was from a man named Charlie. He asked me if I was from Tornsney and told me that he wanted to investigate the town. He explained he specialized in this type of thing and pointed out the fact that the town was dark because the people were being forced to keep quiet, including the police. Jack and I were the only citizens that he could find, and the thing that infiltrated our town only showed its presence to citizens of Torsney. He gave me a meeting spot one mile away from the town and asked my friend to come along as well. I asked him how I could trust him expecting a short prompt to just go through with it. But instead, he told me that he was the only one other than a Torsney civilian and a local officer that knew something was going on in the town. I told Jack about the emails. His facial expression didn't change from the terrified and confused look, but he raised an eyebrow and told me that he agreed to meet Charlie with me. Before we walked out of the hotel room, I looked through the hole. To my relief, the stalker wasn't there. I opened the door, peeking down both ends of the hallway. Nobody was down either end. Jack and I walked out to Jack's car, glancing all over. There was a bit of adrenaline rushing through me. I was looking for the stalker, but to no avail. Jack and I climbed into the car, and Jack was driving. He set the location on the GPS, and then we headed off. The drive up to the spot was calm, at least for half of the way there. We were in the middle of a rural farmland about 20 miles away from the meeting spot. The sensation of being stared at hit the side of my head. I knew the feeling, I knew who was doing it, it was telepathic. But a third of the sensation was sharply sinister and dread-inducing. I tempted myself not to look. Instead, I stared at the long empty roads and hills up ahead. I couldn't do it for long. It became tempting enough not to ignore. I glanced to my right and sure enough, I caught a female stalker with brown hair sprinting at an abnormal speed beside the car. Seeing those yellow choked by blue abysses for eyes sent chills up my spine. The ride had fallen from calm to dreadful. Jack, it's beside. Yeah, I see it. So speed up. 
Jack brought the car up to the speed limit, and that was when I peeked out the window. Luckily, the stalker wasn't catching up. He wasn't beside the car anymore. However, the numbing sensation of being stared at had moved to my neck. Jack just kept driving. I adjusted my position to relieve myself from the sensation. When we arrived, I spotted a man standing in a small open patch of grass on the side of the road. He wore what looked like a police suit, but it wasn't without any markings. He himself looked to be in his 20s, which seemed pretty young, but I wasn't ready to judge. We pulled up in front of him and climbed out of the car. We greeted him and explained who we were. He explained that we have seen enough weird stuff to believe what he had to tell us. He told us that there's a being that has occupied the entirety of Torsney. It's an unknown being that only shows itself to citizens of the towns that it occupies. It's mainly a perception. I needed a few seconds to believe what he was saying. All I needed to do was consider the stalkers. After all the explaining, he went on to ask Jack and I a couple of questions. How familiar are you with your town? He asked. I explained that I was born and raised there. Jack said that he had lived there since he was seven. I'm not going to make you go into the town if you have too much anxiety about it, but I have some jobs to assign in case you don't have anything else you want to do elsewhere, he said. You up for that? Jack took a step back. He began to shake. His eyes widened as Charlie looked him in the eyes. Are you one of those freaks? Jack asked. No, boy, do my eyes look off to you? Charlie asked with a concerned look on his face. No, but I'm still up for doing the outside job, Jack said. Yeah, he was a victim of the thing in the town, I said, sounding vague. I really don't know what that thing is, but yeah. Fair enough, Charlie said, looking at Jack. He turned his head towards me. I'm willing to go into the town to see what's happening there, I said. I won't let Sam get murdered. Jack's facial expressions back at the hotel confirmed something terrifying had happened there, but what was it? Was Sam already dead? I wasn't going to assume anything. I didn't think that I would be rescuing Sam. This Charlie guy sounded like he had what was needed to help. Alright, Charlie said. Jack, you'll be scanning the perimeter. Don't go into the town or else God knows what. He let out some breath. God, he said under it. Jesse, you'll be following my lead, Charlie said. Charlie reached into his bag and pulled out a dark gray handheld device. He handed it to Jack. Jack observed it and gasped. Man, you really know your stuff, Jack said. What team are you a part of? I don't have a team anymore, Charlie said. I just do what I was assigned to do. Charlie taught Jack how to use the device, where to point it and such. He was told to scan around for any weird anomalies that he could see and talk about them. It sounded surreal and honestly very Ghost Hunter-esque. I already know the story behind how those shows are produced. This time there was some outright proof that something paranormal was happening. Beyond paranormal in fact. As Charlie got Jack to begin scanning around... The intense sensation of somebody's glare hit the back of my head. Chills ran down my spine. For a split second, the sensation on the back of my head burned. I looked behind me. 
25 feet away from me was a woman with bulging eyes and a glare that doubled us in abyss. Not Charlie, it's one of the stalkers, I said. Just ignore it as best as you can, Charlie said. Right after he said that, feminine whispers entered my head. They weren't around me at all. They were in my head. Nobody was close enough for me to hear them whisper, but what I heard was quite weird. Sam got stabbed to death. Charlie's a demon. Don't try anything or else your limbs will be bitten off. A pit of dread hit my stomach. The whispers kind of sounded like bluffs, but the tone sounded genuine. I didn't want to believe any of it. Luckily, I didn't have to. I needed a source. Don't trust the weird stalker who doesn't have a source, I repeated to myself. It didn't stop the chills, but I wanted to focus more on Sam anyway. Charlie, did you know they whispered into your brain? I asked. Yeah, they did that to me before. They need to know their telepathic games don't work on everyone. It was like a persuasion to not go into the town. In fact, that's when I then decided to assume it was. Mostly just to keep myself passionate about saving my friend. Most of the stalker's words began to invade my head. You're pathetic. One of your friends told me something bad about you. She was trying to tear me down with stuff a grade schooler would say. I did still have some anxiety, but I had learned to keep the social anxieties at bay. And how was that supposed to persuade me to not go help Sam? As I acknowledged those things, the woman's tone got fierce. Have you ever tasted blood in pieces of your tongue in your mouth? This was abrupt. My tongue kind of hurt after hearing that, but it was only a question and idea. Though I checked to make sure that my tongue wasn't in pieces, of course it wasn't. If alternate dimensions are real, there are versions of you who are being tested on by tentacle-headed humanoids in underground labs. And this didn't bother me as much, but it was chilling to imagine being tortured and feeling excruciating pain right now in some alternate dimension, if alternate dimensions even exist. The guy is strapped to a chair and gets spiders funneled into his mouth. I imagine that went out of pure habit, even taking my focus off of it and forcing myself to focus on my friends. The image of dozens of tiny legs jumping around in a tube gave me chills. I didn't want any more of this telepathic harassment. Considering it was just a bunch of ideas, I was able to ignore them for the moment. The visuals, however, may end up sticking, but there was something more important going on. I forced myself to think about Sam. Charlie gave Jack a pat on the back and then Jack began walking around with the scanner. Charlie began to step towards me, but before he did anything else, a gunshot rang out behind me, followed by an older woman's scream. The whisper stopped. Charlie looked to his right with widened eyes. I followed his eyes and glanced behind me. The stalker stood still, continuing to stare at me. Directly across the road, screams were echoing from a woman who was rolling around in the grass. Charlie sprinted across the road without hesitation. Ah, shooting those things doesn't work, Charlie said. They're able to deflect bullets with their own skin. If only I knew that before, the woman shrieked. 
At least you missed the heart, Charlie said. Call the ambulance. All I'm going to say is that she shot herself, Charlie said. Don't kill me or Jesse. The sight and sounds choked my conscience. I couldn't bear them. I glanced back at the telepathic stalker. Was this going to end soon? As the ambulance arrived, the stalker sprinted into the trees. After the lady was put in the ambulance, Charlie sprinted back to me with a look of urgency on his face. We don't have much time now, he said, stopping a few feet away from me. What's going to happen? I'm going to help the paramedics and make sure believable information comes out, Charlie said. It's something that I can do while you are in the town. What did you mean exactly when you said the being was invisible in every way? Wouldn't you be able to detect it? Yes, Charlie said. That's the reason I know it's here. Surely you know what it might be in some way, I said. Like a theory, especially since you can track some of it. Nope, Charlie said. All I could do was track it with professional gear and detect all the stuff that I needed to detect in order to know the being was there at that moment. Has it ever affected your town? I asked. No, Charlie said. He took a small device out of his pocket. A round, almost flat metal looking dark brown object with black lines sketched all over it. It was the size of his palm. Just go and take this with you. I took the device. It was a bit heavier than I had expected it to be. It had a smooth, warm texture that felt slightly euphoric. Is this like... What is this? This is essentially poison for this thing. Charlie said, taking a quick glance at the ambulance. You just have to get the bean to reveal itself and then drop the device on the ground. Well, so it's easier than I thought then, I asked. It took me a second to realize it sounded like he was about to continue his sentence, but I had cut him off. Oh no, he said. You have to get everybody else, including yourself, out of the reach of that thing before dropping the device. Well, how was I going to do that? I asked him and he told me to tell them to imagine the town crumbling, but in many different ways. Apparently, if they imagined it deep enough, to the point their brains would begin to create the slightest sensation, the beings holding the town would feel an energy ten times more intense than each of these sensations combined, choking it to uselessness. It seemed odd. Why would that work? Of course, I didn't specialize in this kind of thing. So you think that I'll be able to rescue 500 people on my own? I asked. Well, the population of the town has probably dropped to about 200 by now, Charlie said. That sent a cold chill straight through me. So the rest might die too, I asked. Hopefully I wasn't about to get the worst answer. No, this thing needs something to feed on, Charlie said. I was feeling a mixture of dread, stress, coldness, and slight relief all at once by that point. I was about to find out what this supposed thing was all about. Anytime the dread piled up, I remembered Sam, the fun we had, the silly stuff, the awesome stuff. All of it was nostalgic. It helped to think about it. It didn't fix it, but it wasn't supposed to anyway. I was grateful this random dude had arrived out of the blue to help. Before I went in, I asked him if he was part of the government. No, he said. I used to be, not directly though but that doesn't matter right now. He told me that it was time to go, 
that the medics were about to leave and that he had no time for any more questions. He sprinted away. I turned around and began walking to Torsney. Well, here goes something. I crossed the empty street. Glancing around, I couldn't see Jack. He wasn't supposed to come with me anyway. He was just supposed to help the way a good friend would. Avoiding any upcoming blockades, I took a right and then I took a left and walked into the middle of the forest. Once I got through the block of forest, I reached a road. I looked both ways. To my left was a blockade. At least two police cars and four officers. To my right was the empty road stretching as far as I could see. Avoiding the blockade, I sprinted across the street and stepped into the forest. As I trekked through the forest, I took note of the draining silence. The only sound was that of trees swaying in the wind. But at one point, the wind was blowing, but the sound of the trees swaying in the wind was left behind me. I continued walking, hoping this would be quick. Ten minutes later, I spotted the elementary school through the trees. Of course, there was a fence at twice my height. I took a right and I traced along the fence. The silence was heavy. I could hear the faint ringing in my ears as it accompanied the crunch of sticks under my shoes. I scaled around the corner of the fence and continued forward from then until I reached a road. There I took a left and walked onwards, passing the school while almost dwelling on the faint ringing in my ears. I gotta look for the bean, wherever it is, whatever it is. I didn't hear or see anything strange until I passed four houses. As I walked, a little bullhorn noise echoed through the air. It came from all directions. I couldn't tell exactly where it was coming from, but then I thought, this must be part of it. I continued on forward until I began to notice the trees up and down the street looking blurry. As I glanced at one of them, I stopped. It was a blurry, fuzzy green and brown. I began to wonder if it was a tree at all. I could take a guess that it was a tree, but only because that's what I thought it was before it went blurry. It was confusing, it looked familiar, but I couldn't place it. I looked back down the road. Every single thing was a blur. Familiar, but I couldn't bring myself to come up with what they were. I could only guess they were what I saw before but they looked different enough to look like something else, or two things at once somehow. I even had this with the sidewalk. I couldn't take a single step. This had to be it. I grabbed the circular device out of my pocket. All I knew about the thing was that it was supposed to curb the beam. I didn't know how it was supposed to do that or how it worked in general. All that Charlie told me to do was drop it on the ground after getting everybody out. Anyway, I observed it. It was blurry too. It was something circular, but what was it? I trusted my intuition that time and slipped it back into my pocket. I had to trust the sensation of texture rather than my own vision. And then the scenery changed. Everything turned a dark shade of blue and then a light shade of yellow. The color changed until it stopped at light brownish yellow. A painful scream echoed from beside me. What looked to be a yellow wall was forming between me and where the scream was echoing from. I also saw an opening. I stepped up to it and looked into the room. 
The room had yellow walls and it was empty aside from there being a man lying in a concrete floor. His eyes were shut tight. His face was blood red. There were bruises on his legs and he was shaking. He stayed in one spot in the middle of the room, shrieking like an animal. Dude, what's happening? I asked. The man shouted incoherently. More screams came from every other direction. I looked behind me and there was another open door. Another empty room with yellow walls. I stepped over to it and saw a woman standing up against the wall on the far corner. She was frozen just standing there. What the heck is happening? The screams from all around were too chilling for me to bear but I couldn't escape them. They were loud and I couldn't recognize a way out. I stepped on the hallway, walking turned to sprinting as I tried to find a way out. Why were people screaming so much? Was I going to be like them? On my way down the hallway, I passed dozens upon dozens of rooms. The chilling screams stayed constantly loud. There were only open doors, openings that I didn't want to look into. Even though there were no visible scars or horrific sights, something was happening. Not knowing what it was filled me with dread. I don't know how long I ran, but it was enough to start being able to hear some animalistic screams echoing from further down the hallway. I can only describe them as demonic. There was a sign up ahead, it just had the number 2 on it. Much further down the hall was a moving cloud of fog. What looked like people crawling out of the fog were pulled back in. There was a sign ahead of that too. I wasn't going that way, nope. I was confused as to how I was supposed to get any of these people to listen to me. That was, besides, going up to them and bearing their persuading screams. All while, the craziest, creepiest, most unlikely ideas about what might be happening to them flooded my head. I don't know if it was me doing that or if it was the being pushing more chilling thoughts into my head. As I ran, something blurry slammed me in the face. I fell to the ground and looked at my surroundings. All that was around me were yellow walls. I was laying on a cold, cracked, concrete floor. Before I could pick myself up, images of mangled faces, ape-tiger hybrid creatures cornering people in warehouses, people falling off of bridges flooded my brain. They weren't just images though. I could feel everything the imagined people were feeling. Excruciating sharp pain on every part of the body. Adrenaline general terror. Sometimes the pain was prolonged. Other times the pain was a sudden stab straight through every sense at once. The worst part of it was that I knew these people. Some were my neighbors and one of them was Sam. I felt them. I felt the worst pain imaginable. It was theirs. It was surreal to feel the pain of good neighbors and my good friend. I struggled and stared at the exit. However, it was as if I couldn't move. With every imagined scenario, I felt as if I had to stay in one spot and imagine it. I brought up a different thought, but it was interrupted by an abrupt thought about a bear with sharp appendages and a human head chasing me down a trail in a forest. It went on for what felt like an hour before I was able to take at least one mental step up and imagine some destructive stuff happening to the town like Charlie told me to do. I began to imagine the town being swallowed into a sinkhole, but the image of a screaming skeleton covered in decomposing flesh invaded my head. 
An unbearable pain gnawed at my bones. With the image came a pit of dread in my stomach. I tried again, but another image popped up. It was of me walking down the hallway at night. As I neared a corner, I heard my name being called by a voice. A voice without any character to it. I looked back and saw a dark rectangular object at the other end of the hallway. There was no light shining on it, so I couldn't make out what it was. Four red round lights opened up like eyes at different places on the figure. It sounded simplistic, but the thing I saw inspired a pit of dread in me. The thing lunged at me three times faster than my normal walking speed. I jumped. The pain that I felt was sharp, but like dozens of knives were stabbing me at once. Although these things were imagined, they were somehow able to inspire real feelings in me. As if I was there and not just feeling a slight tingle or light chills when imagining anything of the sort on a normal day. I couldn't do it. I could only think about the stuff the being was stuffing into my head. A dozen more terrifying images of creatures chasing me. Everybody swarming my neighbor's house and breaking everything while threatening my neighbor. And cult members surrounding me with torches and books. With weird symbols on them popped into my head over the following moments. Filling me with dread and adrenaline. It felt as if the imagined scenarios were warnings. They were too vivid to be my own imagination. There was another source of dread though. It came from me being unable to move. I had become like the others. What did this being want? Why did it need us to be scared and in pain? Why did the pain have to be real? It forced us all to live out hyper-realistic imagined scenarios that technically doubled as real. But then it hit me. All the intrusive, imagined scenarios were built off of fear. It seemed only the terrifying ones were being pushed. So what if I imagined the town being destroyed in a way that I'm fearful of? I imagined myself standing in my kitchen while my house burned to the ground. But my house never burned in real life. Don't worry. But I imagined it in as much detail as possible. Every appliance was flaming, thick smoke obscured everything into a dark gray like scene with flames being slightly visible in some places, and they were growing in my direction. I went on to imagine the entire town in the same condition, every building up in flames, every tree too. After about five seconds of this, I felt an odd throbbing sensation on my forehead, and then extended to my entire body. It wasn't painful, but I felt a miniature wave of relief every two seconds. This had to be it. I put my focus back on the flaming city. I imagined the roads cracking, fiery explosions on every street corner, and then the ground protruding upwards. At that point, the throbbing became distant and the relief began to overtake the pressure from said throbs. Out from under the ground came a robotic spear. The sphere detonated in an explosion that I intended to be ten times worse than the one in the Hiroshima atomic bombing. The throbbing stopped and I felt a falling sensation for at most two seconds. I ended the thought. However, the throbbing hit me all over so I brought the thought back, especially the intention, and I held it and the throbbing dissipated. I was laying on the floor of the yellow room and it began to blur. I picked myself up and walked into the hallway. The blurring of everything obscured my sense of direction. 
I was leaving this place, but I still needed to do the task at hand. I warned the person in the next room over to imagine their worst environmental fear happening within the town. By this time, the person in the room had become blurred and unrecognizable. The sight was chilling. You would have to be there to know how uncanny they looked. I imagined them standing in the parking lot of the Tornsby Library. I decided the library was to be hit with an asteroid. The blurred person screamed. I rewound the scene. The blurred person is standing in front of the library while it's up in flames. Parts of the building crumble. And then I imagine the entire town up in flames again. But with every building collapsing and the parts of the town away from the library sinking into a fiery abyss. The blurred person had defined facial features again. The outline of their clothes was made clear as well. I didn't have time to speak to them. I rushed to the next room. The only issue was everything around me had become a yellowish white blur. I attempted to use the technique to stay in a lucid dream, assuming that it would work inside the being's perceptive reality. Everything had become a white blur. I felt that I was slipping. I imagined everyone I knew and have at least seen the appearance of before standing on the property of Torresny Elementary School. I imagined the same thing that I had imagined previously. While holding the thought, I remembered the device. I pulled it out of my pocket and dropped it. I hoped that I could get everybody in time, but there was no way that I could. I didn't know everybody from Tornsney. Maybe I could recall some of the screams. I recalled them. I imagined them surrounding the town. Every house exploded. Maybe I couldn't get everyone, but I was the last one who wasn't a victim of the being. Until I was captured by it. I was brought out of my mindset by a change in scenery. The sidewalk, trees, houses, a partly cloudy sky, it was all back. It was all clear. Outlines, colors, everything. A man was standing a few feet away from me, his eyes were wide open. He glanced around at everybody in our vicinity and his expression pulled back. Another two people stood across the street, glancing all over as well. It was a silent walk back outside of town. People were back, the trees moved with the wind, the police blockade was gone. I found Jack's car in the spot that it was left in before I went into the town. I looked around and Jack wasn't in sight, nobody was. I messaged Jack and waited an hour for a response, but it wasn't even read. I had the heavy feeling that everybody knew what had happened, but I had no evidence of it. I checked the news, but it was the same stuff as usual. Nothing about Torsney. The world didn't know what happened at all. It was isolating, but the entire situation was over. My phone vibrated. I checked and saw a message from Sam, asking if I was okay. I told him yes, and then I asked him if he was alright. It was a short conversation, but I didn't want to talk about what happened all that much. So this may have sounded brief. It wasn't. I was relieved that Sam was okay. Okay, so some investigators spoke to me asking about what had happened. I told them everything. They told me that the being that invaded my town, which they referred to as the anti-communication anomaly, was gone. No more slight traces of it could be found. I learned a couple more things about it, such as though the being was mainly a perception, 
it manipulated reality like a shapeshifter. It wasn't a vision, really. I also learned the government's only source for what the anomaly does to people is the witness reports they've gotten from those captured by it. Other than that, they haven't been able to get any information. They elaborated, telling me they'd tried to get a live stream into the town while investigating, but the stream cut off, and cut off with each attempt too. Then they observed from afar five agents they sent out being captured by people with weird eyes. And then they mentioned finding dead bodies with weird-looking eyes, and that their theorizing the anomaly being gone rendered them lifeless. Then they told me that Jack was missing along with about 100 people. Only 95 people ended up reappearing. That pit of dread returned. I asked them if they knew exactly what made those people go missing, and what they said it chilled me to my core. When the anomaly disappeared, it either ran away and took those who were still stuck inside its reality with it, or it stopped existing in the people who were still stuck inside its reality, well, they stopped existing as well. A cold sensation washed over me. How could anyone just disappear like that, stop existing? Their atoms had to go somewhere. The idea hurt my brain. I didn't even know Jack would have gone missing. Of course, he could have gone missing for some other reason, but I couldn't escape the chilling idea that I may have inadvertently ended his existence, however ending somebody's existence would even work. And the rest of the conversation was smooth. It didn't last for more than a half an hour at most. The last thing the investigators told me was that I can only refer to them as investigators if I ever brought up my situation to anyone else including those who experienced the same thing. They noted the being isn't supposed to be known about by the general public yet. I need to distract myself for a while. I'm not living this down. This came out of nowhere and I don't know whether or not it'll happen again. I don't know why the anomaly had to do what it did. In fact, I don't even want to know. I'm not going to try to find out. Maybe somebody else will, but not me. It's too freakish. Thank you all for listening to this week's episode. I hope that you enjoyed it. Wherever you may be in the world, I hope that you're staying safe and sound. And as always, stay creepy.